Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two, lamp, on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you Memorial Day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, let alone, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I invite you to join with me in prayer. Father, having um, just heard these words uh, read, our desire is in these words to hear you speak to us. Your word shapes us, your word renews us, because your word points us to Christ Jesus. And so again, Lord, we acknowledge our need of your spirit to be at work in our souls, opening us to what you have for us, and we ask that you would renew us, encourage us, 
draw us nearer to yourself this morning as we listen to you together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this title isn't in Exodus, but I feel like it could be in the beginning of these verses that we interrupt this story for a meal. Because we are in a fairly intense story in the story of Exodus. You might have noticed, you know, we, you know, we have Israel who is suffering. We have God saying, let my people go. And then we have the ten plagues. And where this is, nine of those dramatic plagues have taken place. And one of them is about to take place. And we know what happens. We've seen the movies, or at least some of us. We know the water's being parted. But suddenly, in the middle of all of this drama, there is this pause. And God says, I want you to have a meal. And I think what we're meant to understand is that while we sometimes think information is crucial, we need information for understanding, God knows that to truly shape a people, they need more than just information. They need traditions. Because it is our traditions often that define us, that give us a sense of identity. And you might have noticed here, as he's talking, as he's giving these instructions, he is telling them to begin a tradition. You know, verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. So they're not even yet out of Egypt, and God is already saying, you're going to have this feast every year for centuries upon centuries to remember this time. Because God is giving this to shape his people. We, we even can sense that if we were to keep reading beyond these verses, on three different occasions in the following paragraphs, God says, now if one of your kids asks you, why are we doing this this way, here's what you say. Because he wants this meal year after year to shape the very identity of who these people are. It is not an exaggeration to say that in the Passover feast, we find the very heart of the Old Testament faith. In fact, it's not even an exaggeration to say that it's the heart of our faith because the Lord's Supper, which we will be celebrating in just a short while, is a meal that springs from the foundation of the Passover meal. This meal has been given, whether we're talking about the Passover in the Old Testament or the Lord's Supper now, to fundamentally give us our identity and shape who we are. And so this morning, it's worth just pausing and seeing what is this meal meant to teach us? How is the Passover meant to shape God's people? And I'd like to suggest there are at least three crucial truths that this meal and the way it's celebrated is meant to communicate to God's people. And the first is that God's people are no more worthy of being saved, are no better than anyone else. Now, let me explain why I get there. And to do that, we're going to have to back up for a little bit. And we're going to talk for a moment about the ten plagues. We, we weren't able to talk about them extensively last week because we had a guest preacher. But so, just for a moment, I want you to understand that the ten plagues, the best way to understand these famous plagues that have been in so many movies is to understand them as apocalyptic. The word apocalyptic means revelation or revealing. It's what was once hidden is now made plain. In our world right now, there are things that are real that are going on that we simply do not see very clearly. I mean, that's, that's the struggle that we oftentimes feel as Christians, right? Like, we, we know that the reality is that God is in control, that he is orchestrating all things. 
But man, we don't see it. And we know that there is this vast spiritual battle taking place involving angelic beings and demons where God is advancing his kingdom against the powers of evil, that that is really the fundamental thing going on in this world, but we cannot see it. Now, one day we will. In the very last day, all that is hidden will be revealed, but for right now, it's just something we have to believe by faith because we can't see. But there are some moments in history where God pulls the curtain back for just a moment to show what will be clear on the last day in the middle of time. Those moments are called apocalyptic moments, where God is revealing something that is otherwise hidden. So if you know the story of of Jesus, when he began his ministry, you might know that there is this time after Jesus was baptized where it says, the heavens were torn apart, the spirit descends, and God says, this is my son. That's an apocalyptic moment. The, The veil is being pulled back for just a moment to let us see what we will only normally see on the last day. And these 10 plagues and, and all that is taking, uh, taking place with them, we need to understand that these are apocalyptic moments. They are ways of God showing what is otherwise hidden. Because remember, when Moses says to, uh, to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, I don't know who you're talking about. Why am I going to listen to him? And then even Israel, Israel's like, I'm not interested in listening to this because we're just Pharaoh's people, remember that. And so they're saying, we don't know the Lord, and God says, okay, I'll show you. And that's what's happening with the ten plagues. God is showing people. And what these plagues are meant to show more than anything else, I think, is that when we go against, when we break God's order in the world, we unleash the forces of chaos and disintegration. That's what Pharaoh is doing, right? You know, God, God is speaking and Pharaoh is saying, I do not need to listen. And, and he, in doing so, is rejecting God's order, God's design. And what happens as a result? It's, it's chaos. The river turns to blood. The world, the area is filled with gnats and flies and frogs and locusts. Hail and darkness and disease come. All of the things are disordered. This isn't the way the world was made to be, but this is what happens when people reject God's designs for the world. And in these moments, it's being revealed in a really clear way. Now, I should say this principle is always true. And if we have eyes to look for it, we'll see it. I mean, think, think of the consequences of greed. I mean, greed is a way of turning our back on God's design for this world. Think of how greed can tear apart society, how, how it hurts the world. It, chaos and disintegration is happening. Or, you know, I think of, you know, the death of what Hugh Hefner was a few weeks ago. Think of how this sexual freedom, pornography, think of just how many countless millions have been hurt, whose lives have been destroyed, chaos and disintegration because of turning their backs on God. And so, and so that's what these plagues are meant to show. It's these apocalyptic moments that are revealing the way things are in stark clarity. And then there's one more plague. And that plague is the most frightening 
and also the one that makes things especially clear. And that's the plague of the death of the firstborn. In that day, the firstborn was more than just someone who was a uh, loved person in the family. The firstborn is the one who carries the name, the honor, the hope of a family. And so when, when God sends this angel of judgment, bringing something that is normally understood to be at the very end of time, bringing it right in the very middle, to bring death to every firstborn, what he is showing is this is what happens when you turn your back on God. It's chaos and disintegration, and the fullest expression of chaos and disintegration is death. To turn our backs on God, to reject his rule, we are choosing death. That's what this apocalyptic moment is meant to reveal. And I wonder if you, like me, feel a little unsettled by the tenth plague. I mean, when you start imagining it and you think of, of the, the countless parents throughout the country waking up in terrible grief. It's hard. I mean, if we're honest, we, we find it maybe a bit disturbing, and, and we kind of think that maybe this seems just a little bit severe. I mean, we understand that Pharaoh was definitely in the wrong, and we understand that the people of Egypt were not those who worshipped God, but it's still hard, isn't it? But I want to suggest to you, even as I suggest to myself, that I think part of our problem here is that we don't understand the depth, the gravity, the terribleness of sin. Because you see, sin has a way of numbing us, of, of desensitizing us, of, of normalizing itself, so that we don't even see it clearly anymore. I mean, as evidence of this, I, I want to say, and this is something that like, it bothers me to even think about, but if, if you and I and we were in 19th century South, you know, the South in America, we quite possibly would be either slave owners or friends with slave owners, and it's likely that we wouldn't even be troubled by that. Because we would be so surrounded by something that is such a terrible sin that it would seem normal to us. And the only reason I can say that with confidence is because we can look back and say that's exactly what took place, right? Or think even closer to the time as, as you know, there have been these terrible things in the news of sexual abuse. And you hear these stories of how lots of people knew and they just turned a blind eye to it because, well, it just seemed so commonplace. And if that's what can happen time after time, that should cause us to realize that we are not likely to be able to see the severity of our own sin. Because sin has a way of normalizing itself so that when everyone else around us is the same way, it doesn't seem like such a big deal. But in this apocalyptic moment where truth is brought to its fullness and the angel of judgment comes we see the lie that any time one turns their back on God it is a severe thing with a severe consequence. 
And that's not even the most radical part about what we see here because that part is, is shown to us actually in the Passover feast because what the Passover feast tells us is that it's not just Egypt that deserved to have this take place. Look, look at the logic of verses 12 and 13. God says in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. This is the plague that we're talking about. Both man and beast, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And then when we get to verse 13, notice he doesn't say, but I'm only going to worry about Egypt, because Egypt are the bad people, and Israel, you're not. No, that's not the standard he says. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now think about what that's saying. That's saying, if there were not blood on your doorposts, you also would face death. That's the only thing that's shielding you from this angel of judgment. In fact, a little bit later on, it says, don't even think, that's my paraphrase, but don't go outside your house at nighttime with a clear implication being, if you do, you are no longer protected by the blood and you will face death as well. Do you see the implication? Israel and Egypt alike, both, if they are brought face to face with the angel of judgment with this apocalyptic moment, they will face death. Which seems to turn this narrative upside down, doesn't it? Because this whole time, Pharaoh's been the bad guy. He's the tyrant. The Egyptians are the bad guys. Israel's the victims. But now we see, wait a second, Israel's got a problem too. In fact, we've seen that a few weeks ago. Do you remember how when Moses is speaking the word of the Lord, at a certain point, Israel says, we don't want to hear that anymore. Because they, in their own way, have turned their backs on God. And so when they have this feast, year after year, after year, they are being reminded that were it not for the blood, you also would be dead. They are eating the reality or holding on to the reality that we are no better than anyone else. That we, with them alike, deserve death. That's a truth that we continue to hold on to when we see the gospel clearly, isn't it? We you know, it can be an easy tendency for you and for me to sometimes kind of look outside and see, oh, people are so lost, and we feel this sense of sadness maybe, but also a sense of superiority. But don't you believe that? Because you and I, we also still, though we believe Christ, we still will turn our backs on God. I mean, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's a matter of choosing productivity over prayerfulness. Or, or being more concerned about how we appear to others than how we are truly before God. Or recognizing there are needs around us, but just deciding we are too busy. These also are forms of us turning away from God and saying, I don't want to hear his voice. The Egyptians, the Israelites, and us as well, the same principle holds true. To turn from God leads to disintegration, leads to death, were it not for the blood of the Lamb. And that's the second truth that is so central to this Passover feast. 
this truth that is meant to shape the identity of God's people, that God's people are people who have been redeemed through a substitute. So, so here, are the here are the instructions that were given. You, you've seen them, and I'm just going to summarize. We're told that they are supposed to take a lamb, a, 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 a flawless lamb, maybe from their own flock if they have it or to purchase it, and on day 10 of the month, they're supposed to bring this lamb into their household. For four days, that lamb is going to be with them. The kids will be playing with the lamb. That lamb will become a member of the family. And then on twilight of the fourth day, that lamb that they've become attached to, they are to slaughter. Slaughter in such a way that the bones are not broken. And then they're to drain the blood of this innocent lamb. I don't know if you've thought about just how, how gruesome what these instructions are, but to take the warm blood and to paint their door with it as the blood spatters. It is something that would be visceral. And then having painted the doorposts with this innocent blood, uh, lamb's blood, they are then to sacrifice the lamb on a fire and then to eat together from youngest to oldest in remembrance of the lamb that gave its life so that they might live. That's the instructions. And on this first night, just just understand what is taking place. Egypt had the strongest military in the world. Other nations were terrified of Egypt's army, but they could do nothing to stop the force that they faced that night. As God's angel of judgment went from house to house with no power being able to oppose it, there was only one, one defense, one shield for this judgment. And that was doorposts with blood. Why? Because those homes had already had a death. Blood had already been shed. And so the angel would not shed blood again. The lamb had died the death that the firstborn deserved to die and had been the substitute so that the firstborn might live. And that is what every year, for century after century, God's people were remembering. That they were alive, that they existed because an innocent creature on their behalf paid the price. So every year as they had this feast, what they were remembering is God was saying, I know who you are, I know what you have done, I know that you have deserved to die, but I have set my love upon you. And so I have provided a way to take away the sins, to take away the penalty for your sins, that you might live. I imagine the only question that they would have, or one of the questions they would have, as they would do this year after year, is how? How is it that just a lamb could pay for us? And so centuries upon centuries later, John the Baptist, who's always this provocative person, says something that would have surprised and confused people as he sees a person in the distance and he points and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's talking about the Passover lamb, but of course he's also talking about Jesus. And my guess is no one else understood. Maybe he didn't even fully understand what he was saying. 
I know that sometime later, when Jesus is the host of a Passover meal, the disciples didn't understand what he was doing. He came to that point in the meal where the host is supposed to, to speak about the lamb and explain the lamb, but Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he says, after giving bread, this is my body. It's given for you. And instead of explaining the, the blood on the doorposts, he takes the cup and he gives it and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, every year you've had the Passover, every year has been pointing to me, I am the Lamb of God. Jesus was the one who entered our household, who became one of us, innocent and spotless. He is the one who was slaughtered at twilight, but his bones were not broken. He is the substitute who died so that judgment would pass over us. His blood is what our shield is. All of the Passover was all pointing forward to the one substitute. And we're told, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. That's, that's a theme I would love for us just to camp out for a while on. He has taken away our sin. A number of years ago when I was in Australia, I think I've, I've shared this before, um, Jennifer and myself and Jennifer's father, we were all planning on going on this kind of like three-day vacation to the Hunter Valley outside of Sydney, and I was looking forward to it. So we pulled out of the parking lot, pulled out of a blind alley, pulled right into a road right in front of a Mercedes that was coming at about 30 miles an hour. And in a moment, there goes the weekend. In a moment, there were literally thousands and thousands of dollars because I was stupid. And I remember feeling more than anything else, not just disappointment, but shame. Shame when I'm calling the insurance company and I'm having to tell them what I just did. Shame when I'm having to file the police report. Shame that I've destroyed the weekend. And there is this desire, if only I could fix it, if only, I mean, I remember thinking, if there's a way that I could reverse time, I wouldn't have done that. Can't I just reverse time? And of course I couldn't. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't take it away. You know, each of us, in a, in a deeper level, in a way that sometimes we don't even let ourselves feel because it's too painful, you and I carry a shame. Now, sometimes shame happens for things that have nothing to do with us because of what people have done to us, but a lot of times it's because of our failure. It's because of ways that we have hurt other people and we can't fix it. It's because of ways that we have fallen short of what God deserves and we feel the weight of a brokenness that we cannot undo and of a guilt that we cannot cover. And God says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. He has come to carry what you cannot carry, to remove the burden, the shame, to pay the price that you cannot pay, to undo what you have done. 
Everything you carry, he now carries in your place. All who trust in him are redeemed, God says, by my substitute, Jesus. That is part of our identity as God's people. We are people who are redeemed by a substitute. Now there's one more truth that I want us to consider because it's so much a part of the feast that even though I'd love to just kind of stay there, I also want to make sure that we see this. And that is that not only are we a people who are no better than anyone else, and not only are we people who've been redeemed by a substitute, but we are a people whose lives are made new through God's redemption. Because if you might remember, when we looked at where Israel was a few weeks ago, Israel needed more help than just being pulled out of their suffering. Israel has an identity problem. They have basically identified themselves no longer as the people belonging to God. They are slaves, not only in their actions, but in their minds, their hearts, their identity. They are people who belong to Pharaoh. And God says, I'm going to change that. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to make everything new for you. And this feast is meant to show that. Do you notice how it starts at the very beginning? Now this is going to be the very first month of your year. In other words, the very first thing of your year that's going to set your year, that's setting your trajectory, is this recollection of how you have been rescued by me and how you belong to me. That is your foundation. Everything else flows from that. That's who you are now. But he also makes this newness clear in this unleavened bread feast. To understand this, we need to talk for a moment about how bread was made in that time. In that day, when you were making bread, you did not have a Fleischmann yeast packet. The only way to get bread to rise was to take some dough and to set it aside for a week. And as it fermented, then it would start rising. Now that can take a really long time, but here was the way that they would solve that problem. Every time that they would make a loaf of bread, they would first take, set aside some remaining part of that dough that had been fermented And then the next time they were making bread, they would take that little lump and knead it in with the fresh dough, and that new, that leaven would then be a part of the new dough. And then before they would make that loaf, they would take a piece and set it aside, and as long as they had that starter dough, they would always have leavening. But but God is saying, I don't want you to do that this time, because you know that old dough? That's the dough from your slavery. We're going to start completely fresh. None of the past. The new has come. The old has gone. Who cares if it's flat? It's new because you are new. You have a new identity. You belong to me. The way of slavery, the way of belonging to Pharaoh is completely behind you. Every year as the Passover is celebrated, that is one of the points, the idea to remember that former way is gone. There is a clean break. There is something fundamentally new that has taken place, and you are new. Your identity is new. And I hope we even see, those of us who are are, are believers in Christ, who have read the New Testament, how all that points beyond itself to what has happened to us through Christ. I mean, Paul specifically says... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Do you understand what that means about you? It's not just the case that your sins have been paid for, although that is true. Something has happened to you when you believed in Christ. The Bible speaks of you being born again. 
where, where your old self, that the self-centered, prideful self has been dealt a blow. It is no longer the person in charge. There is a new self filled with the power of the Spirit that is now who you are. And God says to you and to me, you are no longer the person you once were. Even though you sin, you're no longer defined by your sin. You belong to me, and you have a new way, which is the way of love. You know, perhaps where this is clearest in the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new unleavened lump because that is what you really are, he says. You hear that? That is what you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. To hear the point, Christ has been sacrificed. The old is gone. The new has come. Live into that. You know, in, in our world, most people are trying to become someone that they are not so that they can succeed and gain other people's approval. The gospel turns this completely upside down. We already have God's approval. We have succeeded in him. And now life is just about becoming what we already are. I mean, do you hear the difference? It's not us trying to become something we're not so that we can get approval. It's us already having been approved of and us becoming what we already are. The old has gone. The new has come. You are new people. Live that way is what the Passover feast is telling us. Do you see how this shapes our identity? This, this meal telling us we are no better than anyone else, but we are objects of grace. A substitute has taken away our sin. The old has gone. The new has come. That's not something that we only hear at the Passover feast. It's what is proclaimed to us right here. Jesus says to you, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for your sins. As you eat and as you drink, know that your guilt, your shame is taken away and you have been made new. I invite us to take a moment just in silence to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, to acknowledge where perhaps we have turned our backs on God and to confess, knowing that we have a forgiving God who has taken away our sins. And then I'll lead us in just a moment. Let's pray silently. Father, you know us way better than we know ourselves, and you know how feeble our faith can be. Lord, we confess to you that there are times that we have turned our backs on you, where we have chosen not to listen to you, but listen to our own selfish desires, 
And Lord, we realize that we barely understand how deep the issue of our sin goes. But we do know it's real. And so we confess our sins to you. Lord, we thank you that you have offered a substitute. Thank you that you gave your only firstborn son for us. And we ask now, Lord, as we eat and as we drink, that you would continue to shape us, to give us that new identity that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here again, the good news of the gospel, the words that we have already been listening to from John 1, verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.